The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. Shelf Bookies. I'm Jill. And I'm Tara. Okay, Murder Bookies, we have a special bonus episode for you as part of our series on Jake Anderson's Gone at Midnight, The Mysterious Death of Elisa Lamb. We will be hearing it from the author himself, Jake Anderson. He's been kind enough to agree to spend some time with us chatting about the book, his process, and what's next. Tara and I couldn't be more thrilled. And here you are. We are introducing Mr. Jake Anderson. He is the author of Gone at Midnight, The Mysterious Death of Elisa Lamb. And thank you very much for joining us. Yay! I, I think it's really cool that you did this book. I mean, that video went crazy. Everybody in the world looking at it, trying to figure out what was going on. And you were the one that did that huge investigation. Yeah, the video is definitely kind of what triggered the whole thing. I mean, if it weren't for that video, it's very unlikely that the case would have kind of taken on as much, like, cultural obsession as it did. Yeah. Combined with poor victim's body being found in a rooftop water tank, which just added a whole other dimension to it. But yeah, the videotape, I think, added kind of this, like, weird, visceral mystery to it that I got kind of obsessed with. And um, I know a lot of other people did too. I talked to two different body language analysts about her movements. And, you know, it's not an exact science body language analysis, but it, it is interesting. It's, all, it's almost like a lie detector test. Like it's not an exact science and it's not admissible in court, but it still adds a little bit of like additional information to consider. Oh, yeah. I have to say, we did do much uh, of a discussion on the body language, and I've studied a little bit on it myself. Have you ever seen Clan of the Cave Bear with Daryl Hannah? That's really weird. I certainly haven't seen it recently. Yeah, that's me. I had never seen it either. Okay, so they're a group of Neanderthals taking a Cro-Magnon young girl who happens to be played by Daryl Hannah, and she grows up with this, this clan of the cave bear. And they are guttural in language, but they speak using signs, basically. And the sign for, you know, women submit, we're going to have sex, is this kind of gesture. And I swear it looks like she's doing that. She does make some very weird gestures. They were interpreted variably as hypomanic, symptoms of hypomania, which to me it's almost, it's most likely that's at least part of what was going on. And then also the possibility that she seemed to be sort of afraid, but also a little playful. That's what both the body language analysts said based on her movements. So they think, or, you know, the thought was that she's either thinking about someone that maybe is trying to court her in some way, uh, someone who's 
not there, maybe. Or maybe it's someone who is there in the hotel. It, it's hard to know. It's not an exact science. But yeah. The body language analysts, they seem to think that there was some level of uh, courtship going on that was making her nervous. It's also interesting to know that there was a mirror outside that elevator. That's right. I think part of the time she was standing out there, I think she could see herself. And I don't know about you guys, but like when I'm alone and there's a mirror nearby, I act weird too. You know, like, you know, we all look weird when we're looking. Mm -hmm. We all do strange behavior all the time, especially when we think we're alone. So to that point, I'm not even sure that her behavior was even all that strange. Um, there were parts of it that definitely were. Some of the movements were definitely mm-hmm. creepy, but I can assure you, I've looked weirder standing around alone. <laughs> I, I, I think mean, probably I have too. I'm sure everyone might be able to relate. I know I've been drunk, and there have been times where you start to look in the mirror, like after you're like in the bathroom, you're like, talking to yourself and just kind of like moving around, and you're like. That, to me, is what some of it seemed like. And I was also surprised to hear those interpretations from the analysts. Was that surprising to you, too, to, I guess, hear that and not necessarily think like she was afraid, but was being more or less playful and maybe intrigued by someone that she was attracted to? I definitely felt a little nervous about it because it almost starts to almost hedge into almost like victim-blaming ideology. Not not necessarily victim-blaming, but it, it kind of starts to, like, put some level of, I don't know, sexual prurience on the whole that I'm not sure is necessary that I was a little uncomfortable with. I mean, to be clear, she was, she was not under the influence of any mm-hmm. alcohol or drugs or whatnot. And in terms of her behavior, yeah, there's moments where she's clearly kind of being wistful and, you know, like, it's not like the whole video she's gasping in terror in the corner. Yeah. sort of starts like that, but it evolves and she goes through a number of different behavioral phases. And it just adds to the kind of ominousness of the whole thing. I don't know. Yeah. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to determine the absolute answer of what happened, but Someday. Well, I think if you didn't, I'm not sure anybody's going to, but we can hope. We can certainly hope. That reminds me of something, you know, when getting into what the condition was of her body and the analysis and all, that you were concerned that they had not done a rape kit. But then you find out that they did do a rape kit. They just didn't bother to process it. Well, what the hell? <laughs> Unfortunately, that's uh, very common. Um, there's a huge like backlog of, of rape kids in this country. I mean, even if they bother to conduct one, which is even more rare, a lot of times they don't get processed. And so that's what happened here is the uh, one, well, one of two LAPD officials that were actually willing to talk to me on the record, one of them confirmed that they did do a rape kit, or they did gather the evidence that would be needed to process a rape kit, that they yes. process, which, I don't know, yeah, I think in, in a case of this magnitude, I think it's ridiculous. Especially when, uh, well, when anyone, but uh, much less a young woman is found naked, dead. I, I Under such bizarre circumstances. 
But this was part of just negligence uh, all around. You know, whether there was an actual cover-up or whether they just botched the case, you know, they didn't confer with their in-house psychology unit about bipolar disorder. You know, I spend a lot of time in the book talking about how this was the same week that the Chris Dorner man was back. Exactly, yeah. I really do think they were just overwhelmed, which is not to provide them with an excuse, because there certainly isn't one. But um, I really do think that they just straight up botched this, this case all around. Certainly evidence of that, for sure. I'm sorry that Chris Dorner was running around and was such a threat at the time, but... You have someone who has died under rather bizarre circumstances. You know, don't drop the ball right now, and they certainly seem to. There's just so little information. It's almost mind-boggling how uh, we don't know whether anyone in the hotel was interviewed by the police. We don't know whether, I mean, the only information we got from management or any of the employees came through the civil depositions. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think it's just part and parcel of just, like, I mean, I think there's a lot of problems with these departments in general, but specifically LAPD mm-hmm. at that time. Basically, like, a, a pretty high-ranking either supervisor or sergeant. Someone basically came out and blew the whistle and said that LAPD was kind of systematically under-reporting violent crimes at the time. They were trying to make it seem like crime was getting better under their watch. Or I don't know if that was their movie, but that would make sense. So, you know, I don't know, it kind of makes, there's a pattern there. If they're not fully looking into the homicide element of it, of it and, oh, it just so happens oh. even systematically not taking, you know, violent crime seriously. Yeah, it's an accident. I actually remember rereading that part last night, and it was, I think, in 2014 or 2016, or maybe both years, where they were misclassifying and underreporting violent crime, and then at some point, like, aggravated assaults or something like that that were being reported at 10% less, which is shocking. Yeah. But, I mean, L.A., there's a lot going on in L.A., I can only imagine just why they were trying to do that and how it actually seems from their point of view, too. The thing I really wanted more than anything was to try and interview the family. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I totally understand why they wouldn't want to talk to anyone. You know, they went through this horrible tragedy, which is, I honestly can't comprehend it. No. And on top of that, they had it kind of turned into this spectacle. I can't imagine what they went through. If I were them, I would have been saying, I was like, I'm not talking to any of you guys. Screw this, you know? That said, it would have been very interesting to hear some of the conversations they had with the police. Oh, yeah. Incredibly illuminating. Mm -hmm. I know someone, I know some big shot director, I know that he's doing a series on it for Netflix, which was something I was going to try and do, but, you know, Ultimately, they they go with, with the big shots for these kinds of things. But what I've heard is that I think they've got a couple of interesting interviews. I don't. I know they're trying to get the family. I don't know if they would do it. But um, I'll, I'll be definitely very intrigued if, if they get an interview with the family, because I think that would be... 
illuminating. The family is going to know. They're gonna, I mean, well, they're going to know how suspicious this is. Yeah, I think they will. They'll at least have more insight, or yeah. some insight, or a different insight. They'll have a good feeling. Oh, for sure. We always say, trust your gut. That's kind of our little hashtag. Which it's not all that creative, but it rings true just about every time. And with the amount of background that you give about web sleuthing and how it was started, and one of the ones that consistently sticks in my mind is the guy you called Mark, and just how he gives our web sleuthing a bad name. <laughs> just see it on your face right now. Um, so, so just to clarify for anyone who's not certain what you're talking about, Mark was a guy who uh, I saw on a couple of forums who basically sounded coherent, sounded, you know, like, so he was like, I have information that both the family and the police were going to want to see, contact me. And so I contacted him. He said he had solved like 10 cases. His investigative method is essentially zooming in on the video and interpreting in the pixels the outlines of shadows and demons and imaginary people he says are there. I won't even go into how uh, it's even more absurd than that, but I I don't want to give that much more time to it. (laughs) When I accidentally called him again, thinking it was someone else, and so the update I have to that is he called me, like, literally last week. Oh, my God. (laughs) And... It happened again. He, he he called me and I was he was like, Hey, it's Mark. Uh, we spoke and immediately I was just like, Oh my god And he said, Look, you know, I heard some of your interviews where you were you mentioned my name and look, I know you were kinda of making fun of me, but I really do think you need to take this more seriously and um you know, I was as polite as I could be and told him I would you know, I gave him my email, and then I guess he didn't write it down. So when we got off, he tried to call me again, and so he hadn't written my email down. I don't know. It's it's I, it's kind of part of a larger trend I'm seeing. In the book, I talk about something called illusory pattern perception. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the phenomenon apophenia, where you see faces in natural chaos, like in static and whatnot. And I think it applies to not just faces and static, but also um, the kind of uh, conspiracy slash synchronicities we're seeing all across the place right now from political conspiracy theories, all kinds of things. I think people are are finding pattern. People naturally, I think, are scared of of chaos. Oh, I agree. The natural just horror that is the chaos of the universe. And so I think we have some built-in evolutionary mechanism that wants to find order. And I think this is just an example of that, and I don't want to, like, cast too many aspersions on people personally, but I do think for sure that when we're talking about trying to forge a, a decentralized movement of web who will be taken seriously by the police, it's certainly not helping anything to have someone out there calling the families, calling the detectives, talking about demons and shadow figures and whatnot. You know, it just doesn't help. Yeah. Uh, I was hoping you were going to say no. I hadn't heard from him. So I'm really sorry to hear that it continues to be a, an ongoing situation. <sighs> 
the only really new thing else besides that is um, a woman who was longtime friends of the general manager, Amy Price, she sent me an email and she said, hey, can we talk? I messaged Amy Price about your book. And I actually got kind of nervous. I was like, oh my God, what is this? Is this someone who's going to be, you know, suing me for libel or something, even though yeah. I hadn't said anything libelous. But, and it turns out that she had hung out with Amy Price and that when she heard about my book, she seemed to get a little bit strange or contemplative, uh, quiet, and that she seemed to have more that she wanted to say. And I've also heard a rumor that that same production I was just talking about in for Netflix, that they got an interview with her. I don't expect her to reveal anything in it, uh, because she would literally be perjuring herself if, if she did. Right. But that's the only new thing I can come up with right now, or the, the only thing that, that's new to the case. At least no other footage has ever been revealed. Oh, no, no. Definitely not. Yeah. I'm sure there was other surveillance footage from that night, but, you know, we don't know. Uh, part of me thinks that maybe there's footage that was very unflattering to Lisa that they, you know, when they realized how badly the footage they put out was handled, as bad as that stigmatized her, maybe there was other footage and they were like, okay, well, we're not going to do that again. Or maybe the family asked them not to do that again. Who knows? I mean, there's no way there's no other surveillance footage of her in the hotel. Yeah, a hotel so, that size. One camera yeah. was working. That's yeah. it. During the whole time she was there. I mean, that didn't ring true. Yeah. So tell me, what's next? And and how are you? I wonder how you're doing, too. Yeah. <laughs> your story became a big part of the book, too. So never mind, Elisa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I am very interested in how you're doing. I, I'm, I'm pretty good, actually. Um, yeah, I mean, I definitely kind of put myself out there. I, I felt like since I was going to be writing about someone else's personal problems, that I, I felt like responsibility to put myself out there to talk about my own struggles with depression and, you know, issues like that. And um, so, yeah, I think it's definitely something in general that needs to be talked about more. Totally agree. And especially as it pertains to crime, I think it's a necessity that we start getting more realistic about uh, mental health. Um, but generally speaking, I'm good right now. You know, besides the, the you know, claustrophobia of the pandemic. Yeah, I'm just trying to reboot my efforts and get better as a, as a journalist and look into some new cases. I was living in Albuquerque for uh, a little while, and there's a case there called the West Mesa Murders, and this was basically Albuquerque's first serial killer, and they found... Uh, Basically, someone murdered a bunch of sex workers and buried them in Albuquerque. And the police didn't take it seriously because police don't take crimes against sex workers seriously, especially people of color. Yeah, and, sadly. And so I, I was digging into that pretty hard, actually. I interviewed like the, the, the new surgeon of sex crimes in Albuquerque who seems to be trying to turn things around there. 
And I desperately want to write a longer piece about this case. I've interviewed some family members. You know, I think I was trying to figure out how to piece it together. Um, there's a few other cases I'm working on. I definitely want to write something that's not so personal next time. <laughs> or my next thing, I, I kind of want to, uh, you know, do a little slightly more traditional true crime format. Because I get it. I've heard, I've seen reviews. I mean, a lot of people love the book, but I've seen all the reviews. I know that some people were really turned off by how much I talk about myself and that whatnot. Uh, my intention is always to bring kind of a new, you know, element to true crime, a new angle to it. But um, I might have gotten a little carried away. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you live and you learn, you grow, and that's what I'm trying to do right now is just get better. I think you were incredibly brave to do that. I think so, too. And I'm sure it was probably a little yeah. cathartic as well. Yeah, it was. Yeah. yeah, and here you're you're kind of following in her footsteps to see what happened, where she was, fifth floor, 14th floor, how would you get where, as you are literally, literally walking in her footsteps, right. dealing with the mental health issues, which I think is going way above what most journalists would do experiencing that, which is in incredible. I mean, you know, there was a point where I turned around, I said to Tara, I said, do you realize that he's got this, this book contract and he's doing all this research and doing all this and said, hey, I'm going off the meds. But I got what you were trying to do. I think that was incredibly brave to do that. Huh? Risky as hell, man. Appreciate that. It, it was. It's just always been something that's important to me. Uh, in, in many ways, I think I'm lucky to have started to kind of destigmatize the idea of being on a medicine starting when I was like 18. Because I think for a lot of people, it's too scary. And it is scary to tweak your brain chemistry. You know, the more and more I talk to people who have just overwhelming depression and anxiety, people who in many cases, we really can't even function or keep work or keep relationships. Like, I think it's it's more important to be, like, honest with yourself about what you need and how to tweak things. And I'm, I'm especially glad that you guys caught on to, like, the narrative device, because basically what I wanted to do was build up the whole second act of the book so that you thought the climax of that part of the book was going to be discovering some big new piece of information or a ghost or something like that. But ultimately, the, the climax of that part was just me, you know, coming brutally to terms with, with my own faults, if we want to call it faults or, or whatnot. But, uh, yeah, it was kind of a misdirection, but certainly, there were certainly a lot of readers that hate me for it, but whatever. Oh, I, mean. <laughs> I don't think so. I know people who have definitely had problems with depression. And they think it's weak. I'll just push through it and it's just weak. And, and I say, well, if you had strep throat, you know, would you go get an antibiotic? It's like, well, yeah. I said, well, I don't get it then. Why not get medication to help you with a biological problem? Oh, well, I don't see it that way. I said, well, why not? It's a biological problem. This is not 1952. This is not 1852. You know, we're not going to lock in insane asylum and bring people through bedlam. You know, we're not going to look at the inmates. I said, we've come a long way since then. Come on now. Got to keep talking about it. We need to do a lot more with mental health in this country. I've been talking to a lot of my friends who are into true crime, and uh, 
and the one of them that I got really super interested in reading your book. As soon as I told her about it, I think she got the audio version. Yeah, she hasn't been able to really read. She's been going through grad school, getting her degree in social work and actual uh, and being a sex therapist. And then she's also been dealing with young girls and body image issues, depression, anxiety. And she's gone through a lot of that herself. So she's coming at it from your perspective as well and also trying to lessen the stigma of mental illness. And I know that she is very active on social media and, and coming to terms with some of those things and really trying to make an effort to have other people look at it in a way where it's not weird, it's normal. There's so many people who suffer from this, but yeah. she was super excited that I brought her your book to her attention. So I'm definitely going to circle back with her and see what she thought. That's great. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, I think that was my favorite part. It was definitely refreshing to see that. Again, you were brave in doing so. And I think it just brought a little bit more to the story. Just to, just to showcase that with her. Because we saw just from that video, we, it, it's rare when you really dive into like a victim sometimes and see it from their point of view. But then it's also even more rare where you see a point from an author kind of coming along in that same aspect. So her blog writing thing put in there too it just kind of it really gave me a lot of extra to really understand her understand you and then a lot of the fluff I guess if you would call it around the case just in terms of conspiracy theories and ghosts which is exciting to to read through as well but I think this kind of really made it more realistic to me and think about things in, in a definitely different manner well that's thank you that's great and yeah Without her blogs, I mean, it, it wouldn't even have been possible to, to do this because, she, I mean, originally she was the brave one. I mean, she documented in real time probably a, a significantly worse problem than, than even I had. I mean, she was rendered virtually non-functional, and I just... I, was just kind of in awe of her as, as a 21-year-old being that self-aware yeah. and being that brave to like document that. To me, it was worth memorializing that in some way. And um, I just basically didn't think anyone else was going to... I mean, I'm sure people are going to touch upon the mental illness angle or whatever they do. But to me, that was the... Initially, that was the bigger story for me. That was originally why I started writing about case was that narrative. And then I started finding stuff out about the case that made me think, oh my god, what if, what if this actually is like a, a homicide, you know? So. Yeah. <sighs> I think you did a masterful job. I really do. Thank you so much. It yeah. really means so much to me. We wouldn't have been seeking you out, <laughs> believe me, if we were a little oppressed. It was okay. Yeah. You know, right. No, it was, it was terrific. I really thought it was amazing. The, the weaving of the different threads, the way you put the whole thing together in a way that made sense. Just that, taking all of that, and it made sense. I mean, I can't do that. You did that. That was amazing. Thank you so much. That really does mean a lot to me. People are, you know, you know, I definitely got a lot of bad reviews and critiques and whatnot, but I've also gotten like uh, dozens upon dozens of, of personal messages from people essentially thanking me for, for covering that 
part of it is, you know, shedding light on that. So, like, I mean, to me, that's makes the whole thing worth it. Yeah. You know what just hit me, too, is the way you described her friends, that, you know, she felt they kind of left her, but they may not have seen it that way. You know, again, the differing perspectives on how you're looking at that. And, I mean, that section alone is invaluable to anybody who's dealing with someone. I mean, I'm talking young people now, um, former high school teacher here. Young people who are dealing with a friend who has depression, you you may not be able to step into their shoes because you don't have any life experiences. You're, you're just a teenager yourself. I'll tell you that, if I was still teaching psychology, I would pull that out. Use that in class. I really would. Yeah, for young people, that's definitely a major social ostracization that can go on. And I mean, teenagers, young adults are obviously already so um, confused uh, and, and, and torn in different directions by hormones and, and just changing psychology. But it's even that much harder. Oh, yeah. And, uh, I remember when I, I mean, I was, I'm 38 now. When I was 21, I was. Uh, you know, a mess. And I was, yeah, I was taking meds off and on for it, but there was just no. It was something that I was definitely ashamed of for a long time, and fortunately, my family was incredibly supportive and uh, never made me feel weird about it and whatnot. Um, but yeah, that's yeah, we had a, a huge. Yeah. I probably wouldn't say read the whole book. Using yeah, that, that there is a true crime. I mean, when did I pick up my first true crime book? Probably when I was like 10. Yeah. When you think about it, I mean, we talk about foul play. We don't know if there is actually a murder. Obviously, we have a victim here. We have a dead body in the water tank. But I think just the amount of stuff in here in terms of mental health and talking about it, I think would appeal to, I wouldn't say like, super young kids, but teenagers who are interested in true crime and also looking to look into an alternate experience or see things from that perspective. Too. Yeah, that is great praise. That would be incredible to me if, if young adults got into the book. But, um, yeah, we'll see. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to keep talking about this stuff, and I'd like to include social justice issues in, in writing and whatnot. Uh, you know, I'd probably... I'm going to take a break from, you know, being so honest about myself. Uh, but, like, there's definitely times where I, like, have, like, miniature panic attacks thinking, like, oh, my God, for the rest of my life, everyone I meet is going to be able to have this reference of, of my problems. At the same time, it's also kind of liberating. So, I don't know. <laughs> it is what it is. It's yours. I think you did a great service. And... Scroll. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You don't get it? Wait till you see the next book. We'll cover that one too. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Do you decide to write that book about the West Mesa, 
Misa murders, right? Yeah. Oh, I'm all over that. Yeah, something similar by moving in, and obviously it wouldn't be personal, really, but if you brought to light, we know that sex workers get a bad rap. If we know that there's, like, no protections for them. People of color, transgender, I mean, Jill and I talked, I, I want to say a few times ago, how there should at least be protections, because, I mean, this, this is a job, whether we like to say it or not. I mean, sometimes you can help it, sometimes you might not be able to, or it is a fairly lucrative business, and considering, like, strip clubs, legalized, things like that, where it might not be sex, but there, there's still plenty out there where a lot of people are doing it. It's just not legalized. Similar to, I guess, marijuana, if you, want to, if you want to look at it that way. But just the stigma around sex workers and the fact that they are still people, despite what they do, mm-hmm. and the fact that their crime is not reviewed in any similar light to, say, they, they don't want to get too um, in the weeds here, but like a white woman who's murdered or a family who was murdered or something like that. So I would like to see that. <laughs> that was exactly, I mean, that's what I wanted to do and still want to do. In fact, my mother asks me every time I talk to her, she says, you're not giving up on that case, are you? But no, I mean, sex work and, and drug dealing, uh, these are essentially inner city forms of entrepreneurship that have been outlawed by the government. Sex work is the oldest, one of the oldest you know, careers in the world, typically speaking, it's wealthy white men who are flushing money into the sex work trade. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's an angle I'm not going to get too much into here, but it, I think there are issues surrounding sex that are incredibly important. And with drug dealing also, you know, it, it's not like drugs aren't being sold by corporations. And uh-huh. it, the most harmful drugs are being sold by pharmaceutical guys, so whether it's being criminalized for the more entrepreneurial urban demographics to take part in that, I think it says a lot about our, our criminal justice system. So yeah, you're right, that, that, that's something I really want to get into, and yeah, I don't think we have time to get too much, too, too into the weeds on it here. Hey, we're happy to chat anytime you want. You've got your own little fan club right here. Yeah, I, I, I really do think I was super into it. And also, you know, because I know this is a, a true crime book club, and, and ultimately, at the end of the day, true crime is what we're talking about here. You know the name of this killer? I, I've gotten pretty close to a woman who was running the Street Safe Albuquerque. She started the company because of the West Mexicans, uh, which is also called the Bone Collective. Huh. Because all they found of these women were the bones. Oh, wow. And there's, like, satellite images that you can trace over here showing how the ground is disturbed um, across this plane. So you can kind of see it also, like, geological erosion of serial killers' units. And there's, there's a lot to this case. I'm still missing some pieces in terms of you know, they, they think that the killer might be dead, which is kind of a, a non-climactic ending. I mean, you want to see justice brought, but they think he may be dead. So anyway, there's a lot to this case. I'll stop laughing at this point. But... Well, no rush. We will be waiting. The West Mesa Bone Collector case is, is a pretty 
much nothing has been done on it. I mean, besides some articles. So I bet yeah, it's something I'm working on. That is going to be something that's going to drive me crazy until you publish. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sad, <laughs> I cannot thank you enough. <laughs> you have been so open. Thank you for coming and sharing your thoughts and updating. And I said you've got your fangirls here. <laughs> oh, one last clarifying question. You haven't written any letters to the California State Attorney yet, have you? No. I mean, I did write it. <laughs> I just, yeah, I, I don't think they're going to do anything. I don't think it's going to matter. But uh, I, I did write it. I Basically, I talked to a friend who's also kind of an informal legal advisor and basically saying that there's pretty much a 0% chance that they're going to take it on, and then also there's basically just a pipeline that you go through. I still might send it. I don't know. You start getting into some thorny legal issues there when you start you know, making claims to a state attorney general. So, yeah. Thank you, Yeah, no, I really appreciate you guys focusing on my book. It means a lot to me, and I love the work you do. And, and yeah, we'll talk again soon. Hopefully, I'll have another book at some point. And uh, we'll talk again. Thank you. It has been great. Hey, keep in touch, please. It's been awesome. I feel like we bonded over technical problems. (laughs) This was a wonderful interview. I'm I'm, I'm honored. Uh, We're we're friends from here on out, and I I don't think this is the last time we've spoken. Perfect. We appreciate you. You guys are my new favorite people. Oh, Jake, thank you so much. You've been great. Thank you. All right. Take care, guys. Bye. That concludes our bonus episode. Hope you enjoyed hearing from Jake Anderson as much as we enjoyed talking together. Now back to work on our next book, A Wilderness of Error by Errol Morris. Take care, murder bookies. Produced by Tara and Jill, all rights reserved.